My name is Mickey Horvath, and I am the host of the Career Guy podcast, where I am interviewing a variety of guests and letting them share their stories about their career and career path, giving you, the listener, a lot more insight to the various careers that exist, perhaps helping you make more informed choices of the career path you may want to take in your life. Today, I'm interviewing Paul McNeil from Step Consulting. Paul has an undergraduate degree in geophysical engineering from Queen's University. He has a doctorate degree from the University of Calgary in paleontology. Paul works as a consultant where he has incorporated his interest in paleontology, geology, hiking, and his engineering background into a freelancing career. In this interview, Paul will talk about the various roles he has had in mining from gold to the oil sands. He discusses how he made the transition to go back to school and study paleontology and what that was like. He talks a lot about dinosaurs and more particularly about his own research and how he went about that. Of course, there are some real surprises at this point of the interview. This is an inspiring and informative interview that will interest anybody that is interested in pursuing a career in engineering, especially in the geosciences area, a geologist, a geophysicist, mining in the gold industry, the oil sands, pursuing grad school, especially in the sciences, and of course, paleontology. With that, I would like to welcome Paul McNeil. So today I'm interviewing Paul McNeil. And this is going to be a pretty exciting interview because Paul has done a lot of things with his life. And I won't describe what he's doing with his life because he's going to describe it. So I to just thank Paul this afternoon for, for his time this afternoon. Hi, Mickey. Great to see you. Happy like to you. have a chat. Yeah, this is going to be a good chat. So I know you live in Calgary, Alberta right now, but if my memory serves me correctly, you grew up in Ontario, did you not? I did. I was born in uh, London, Ontario. Went to high school there, ended up taking schooling at Queen's University in Kingston and managed to graduate in a time of an economic downturn where there wasn't a lot of work and found out that there was work in Fort McMurray, which actually brought me out to, to Alberta. So you went to Queen's University, which is a pretty prestigious university. With that said, what did you take at Queen's? I, I did engineering, mostly because... I didn't know what else to do. Coming out of high school, I was good at science and math. My other area of passion at the time was actually art, but I figured you can be an engineering with art as a hobby and still make a pretty good living. It's a little bit harder to be an artist with engineering as a hobby, so. Fair enough. You are interested in art, and that makes you more of a creative person, does it not? I think so. Creativity is, is quite important in life in many ways. I'm looking at many different options and it plays an important role like even in tactical in engineering or the science fields because there's many different ways of approaching a problem approaching a situation approaching a problem that creativity helps i think a lot of people stumble with that especially when they go into engineering even the sciences and we'll get into this a little bit later on because uh i know you're a real science geek as well but uh, a lot of people think everything's just black and white and it's not so what was your experience like in queens People that are listening to this, they're probably weighing out what they want to do with their lives. And there may be people listening in Ontario that are considering to go to a university such as Queen's. So what was your experience like there? The, the engineering program was, was difficult. I was 
always good science and math in high school. In fact, I found high school to be fairly easy to the point where it was almost <laughs> detrimental at Queens itself. I had never really had to study. I'd never had to work hard to get good grades, manage to get into Queens. And I thought the university would be similar, that I would be able to walk in and do well as I had up into that point in my life. I was in for a bit of a rude surprise, actually. Engineering is very difficult. I walked into it with no study skills, without having to actually work hard. Arrogant, as you know, 18 or 19-year-olds can be, thinking this was going to be an easy thing to do. And very quickly got put in my place. You went from being the big fish in the big pond and the small pond to being a small fish in a big pond. Failed a few courses, which was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it taught me a little bit of humility. Also taught me how to work and to persevere and to make it through. The program there was really quite good in that they focused on not so much on what you were learning but how to learn. So their big emphasis was on taking in knowledge, on how do you take in knowledge? How do you approach a situation? How do you use critical thinking and problem-solving techniques to actually deal with situations and make it through? So instead of dealing more specifically with the knowledge, being having a way of thinking about uh, problems and approaching them and solving them. That's where your creativity would sort of step in. Because it's not just black and white, like I said before. Oh, no, there's all, <laughs> lots of shades of gray and often many different approaches, which I think is something that's important to remember as well. Sometimes you find something that works, but it's not necessarily the only thing that works. And it may not be the best thing that works. So to keep an open mind for other solutions as well. So you're graduating. I'm not sure what year that would be. And... You said it was an, during an economic downturn. So you didn't even look for a job in Ontario or you just came straight out to Alberta? Up until that point, I had been actually doing gold exploration. So I went in for engineering. I really didn't even know, quite honestly, what engineering was at the time. I just knew, again, I was good at science. I was good at math. And it was a program that I thought I would do well with and be interested in. One of the great things about Queens is that in first year engineering, it's a general program. So they uh, require you to take kind of one course from each discipline that they offer. And uh, one of the courses that I was required to take was geology. Turns out I really quite like rocks. I also like physics. So I ended up going into uh, engineering geophysics. Being in Eastern Canada, the focus for Queens is on hard rock. So a lot of metal, mineral type exploration. So looking for gold, silver, copper, iron, those sorts of things. That's what I figured my career was going to be. My summer jobs to that point were working up on the Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. So looking for gold primarily. And I had kept that up, but once I graduated I think our graduating class was in there, around 45 people, of which at the time of graduation, three people had jobs. So there weren't a lot of options out there. At the time, I had a girlfriend who had managed to get a job out in Fort McMurray in Syncrude, the oil sands mine. I came out to visit her, and when opportunity came up where they had actually just fired one of the other geologists on site, and she knew one of the people who was still there, the guy who had worked with him, and told his boss and said, 
My friend's boyfriend just showed up. He's looking for work. Why would you interview? So I happened to go in two weeks after I showed up and it was minus 52 when I showed up there. <laughs> but two weeks after I showed up, I had a job. And about a week after that, the girlfriend turned into the fiance. Well, the fiance eventually turned into the wife. So. so that's kind of how I ended up coming from Ontario to Alberta. And that was, yeah, in 1992. So let's just take a step back. When you worked for the mining company in Ontario, what was that like? There's people that are probably also listening that are aspiring geologists that are thinking that they want to get into the mining industry. So if you could just sort of paint a bit of a picture of what it's like to work for an, a gold exploration company. Uh, like I say, I was on the exploration side of things. I was working for a circle at the time. We were primarily doing a lot of grassroots type exploration. So we we're traveling around looking at a lot of different mineral claims, talking to various prospectors, doing research in the, where is it? The uh, Ministry of, uh, Ontario Ministry of Mines and Development, I believe was the uh, department that I was holding at the time, which helped holds all the records of all the mining that's been done. So going through the records, trying to find uh, potential mineral finds. Uh, so there's a lot of research, traveling around to a lot of small towns. And once we'd find prospects, again, this is associated with the geophysics, we'd go out and we'd set up grids and run magnetic gravity, electromagnetic surveys over the property to see if there was any uh, signatures coming up from there, from the ore bodies. Other things we do is periodically Ontario, which <laughs> a lot of the mineral leases were granted a hundred years ago, for example, and they would last for 99 years. So periodically all these leases would expire. It would engender what we would call a staking rush, where people would have to try and go in and select the leases they want, and you'd have to put people on the ground actually go out and stake those claims before anybody else could. And you actually had to do this physically. You actually had to get somebody out there with tags and posts and actually put in a post and a tag at all four corners of your claim. And so we'd coordinate helicopters and get guys who'd specialize in this, who were runners, who could actually run the fastest time to go around the edge of your claim put the tags in, and then you get the helicopter, pick them up, fly them back to the government office so you could get it registered. If you could do that before anybody else did, you could actually stake that claim. So coordinating those staking claims, that sort of stuff. It was uh, a pretty exciting stuff, actually. <laughs> it sounds like it was real field work, too, as well. It sounds like you're in the field an awful lot. Yeah, spent a lot of time on Bush on the Canadian Shield in Ontario. Got really familiar with black flies and mosquitoes and uh, horse flies and everything else that wants to uh, suck your blood. <laughs> so anybody who's interested in getting into something like that, I mean, you really would have to be able to learn how to camp. You really are a nature lover type of person, are you not? If you're on the exploration side of it, yeah. You spend a lot of time in the field, a lot of time in the bush hiking around. It's a lot easier these days with GPS and stuff. It depends. If you're doing, like I say, that's more at the exploration. Once you get to the development side of things, which I never did, you end up with camps being developed with accommodations. And it's a little bit less hiking around in the bush and a lot more working on a construction site and having a drill program, which is actually used to 
figure out exactly where the ore body is and come up with the signs for making the best way to extract that ore body. So whether it's through an open pit or by, you know, creating a series of mine shafts, however it might be. But the work I did was definitely exploration. As I say, a lot of grassroots, a lot of time out in the field, hiking around. And if you love that sort of outdoor activity, it was fantastic. Is it seasonal? Usually, yeah. Usually you do most of your exploration work in summer. Just again, because of the weather constraints, one of the things that we wanted to do a lot of times is, is look at rocks. And that's easier to do when they're not covered with snow. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> you gave us a good rundown on that. So let's move ahead now. Let's go to Fort McMurray. And you got your job as an engineer there. What was the exact title? I was actually doing geotechnical work okay. there. And I was, the exact title was high wall monitor. That's so one of the things that when they were mining out the uh, oil sands ore body, is they're doing it using drag lines. If you haven't seen a drag line, it's kind of like a giant crane. And when I say giant, these things weighed about 6,000 tons and were about 100 meters long. In fact, at the time, they were the largest moving vehicles on the planet. The bucket you could park, which they used to dig, you could park two pickup trucks in it side by side. And they were digging uh, next to a 50 meter high, what we used to call the high wall, but it was the edge of the pit, which is about 50 meters wide. And of course it was freshly dug. You have a 6,000 ton machine sitting on the edge of that wall. And it's very easy for the rocks to crumble and for the machine to fall into the pit. And it was about $100 million to replace the machine. Plus you had a crew of three guys on the machine as well that would run it that probably would not do very well if the machine went into the pit. So that was the job was to look at that wall, make sure it was stable, interpret the geology, and come up with a way to keep the drag line out of the pit. <laughs> That's a good explanation. I never knew that. And that must have been quite the operation. I mean, it sounds huge. It was huge. It was on a scale I haven't actually even seen since. And that was what I started because I thought it was uh, normal. Like I say, the drag line itself, one of the biggest machines in the world, we had something called a bucket wheel reclaimer. So the drag line would dig this ore out of the pit and stack it in a row next to the pit. Most people associate the oil sand, see these giant wheels that turn and that would actually move the ore body onto a conveyor belt, which would then take it into the refinery to actually be processed. And those as well were more the size of office buildings than as machines, as people said. The trucks around that were running around the mine were around 250 tons at the time, which means that the truck itself weighed about 250 tons and they could haul around 250 tons. Just when I left, uh, they were getting up to 330 ton trucks. I think they may have up to 500 ton trucks now. So yeah, you're just in a little pickup truck that's running around at the base of the mine, trying to avoid all these big machines. It was quite an interesting place to start. <laughs> there must be quite the culture shock just to get there. You're living in a small town. So if you could just give us a picture of what living in Fort McMurray is like and what kind of culture shock was it just to work in a mine like that? How do you come into something like that so big and figure out what your role is? In terms of culture shock, 
Fort McMurray then, say this is almost 30 years ago now, was a lot smaller. I think it was around 27, 30,000 people when I moved there. In many ways, there's a lot of advantages to it being a first job in that because it was a city that was relatively new, the mines had only really started opening up in the mid-70s. Everybody there was very young. For a lot of people, it was their first job. So there was quite the culture of a lot of young engineers. Almost all of us were from elsewhere because people from Alberta were willing to go and work in Fort McMurray at the time. So most of us were from all over the country, including a lot of Easterners. And because of that, it was very welcoming. Because like I say, everybody was used to coming in from elsewhere. So they recognized the fact that you're walking into a new situation. You didn't have friends or anything like that. Uh, in fact, once people had heard that I was coming up, I was actually put on a football team before I actually even got there. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of had some friends that were built in just because my wife was up there already. And so that was a big help on the social side. Uh, walking into it in the mine itself, a very different situation because you're coming from kind of a university environment, a more academic type environment, working into an operation setting. So you're dealing with a lot of guys who don't necessarily have a lot of education, have come up through a different kind of system where they're rougher guys, a lot of trades guys, good guys, and certainly, say, very intelligent, very good at their job. And this is one of the things that I learned fairly early on is a good way to be in that sort of situation is mouth closed, ears open. I'm kind of walking in there as the young engineer who's supposedly put in charge of a crew of guys who've been doing this, their job for 15 years. And at the time we're 20 or 30 years older than I am. And it's very easy to walk into that situation and find yourself hated <laughs> once you start telling them what to do. What's better is like I say, keep your mouth shut, keep your ears open. Listen to what they have to say. Let them tell you how things work. At the same time, again, critically evaluating it, building up your own impressions, how you should th things should work, but respect their expertise and their experience because they have knowledge that you can't, that you don't at that time. And showing them a lot of respect, I think, was uh, highly beneficial to me. I got on really well with the crew that I was, like I say, supposedly in charge of, even though they do my job better than I did when I first showed up. It sounds to me like you actually facilitated everything there. Not facilitated. Say my job was to keep them safe, to keep their machine okay. up on top of the high wall. <laughs> I wasn't the first high wall engineer they'd seen. It was typically a more junior position. People would come into it, stay there for a couple of years, and then move on into their engineering career. So they had seen many versions of me coming okay. through their work site. So as I say, walking in when we started, they actually had, in many ways, understood my job better than I did. And I've seen this happen in a lot of situations. There's people who come in and be arrogant about like, oh, I'm the engineer. I know what's happening. I'm going to tell you guys how to do your job. As I said, they knew my job better than I did. So respecting them, letting them know that I respect them, respected their experience, their abilities listening to what they had to say and allowing that to all develop 
naturally meant that I had a good team. They respected what I could do and we worked really well together and it was a really good situation. How long, how many years did you work there? About five years. About five years. And it sounds like to me, like you did like it. I did like it. Like, why did I leave? Which is where I think you're probably going. I am. Um, <laughs> is mostly I looked ahead at the people who were ahead of me who had been working in that field for 20 years and realized that that necessarily wasn't what I really wanted to do moving forward with my life, moving forward with my career. I didn't want to be where they were 20 years from now. This is where, again, kind of a lucky circumstance came in or an opportunity came in in that it was around that time when I was trying to reevaluate, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, that the first big paleontological find came out of the Syncrude mine. They found a long-necked plesiosaur. Plesiosaur is one of the marine reptiles, the big marine monsters that everyone pictures from the Cretaceous. You can think of the one that was in the Jurassic world, for an example. And as a result, once they found that in the mine, a delegation from the Royal Terrell Museum came up to collect it. At the time, Phil Curry, who was at the Royal Terrell Museum, a fairly well-known dinosaur researcher, also gave a talk up at the Oil Sands Interpretive Center. So I went to this talk when they collected the fossil. And at the time, I asked him, what are the career potentials in paleontology if I happen to change what I'm doing and going to paleontology because it was one of those things that I had always been extremely interested in ever since I was a kid, but I'd never considered a career option in it up until that point. Phil at the time basically said, oh, well, there are none. There are no jobs available, but if you love it, you'll make it work. <laughs> Pretty blunt and honest. That's Phil. A <laughs> uh, good guy. So after that, he went back down to the trail. I continued working there for about a year. And then after a year, I decided that I really wanted to make a life change. So I contacted him at the trail, asked if he remembered me. And if, if I came down to talk to him, would he be willing to talk to me? And he said he would. And so I drove down from Fort McMurray, eight hours to the Royal Trail Museum and met with him in his office. And said, hey, I'm, I'm going to try and get back into school to do uh, graduate work in paleontology. And if I do that, would you be my supervisor? And he said, yes. So there you go. <laughs> A couple of questions I, I just want to ask you before we really roll ahead. If You mentioned if you looked 20 years ahead at your senior people in Fort McMurray, if you would have stayed there, what kind of jobs they had. If you could just sort of just give us a bit of a, an idea of, again, for people that are listening that maybe you want to work up there. If you did stay there for 20 years more, what kind of job, what kind of position would you have there? In the field I was doing, doing a lot of the geotechnical work. So a lot of it was management type stuff where you're organizing projects, you're doing a lot of the financials of it, you're doing the, the organizing of it, the structure of it, which a lot of people really like. But I realize I'm not a really good office person. <laughs> I don't want to be managing teams. It's not something that I really do. I don't want to be organizing all the details. I'm more of a hands-on, kind of in the field type of guy. And so I think that's a really important thing is to recognize not only where your strengths lie, but where you're happy, um, where you enjoy the work. 
I think I probably would have been okay doing that work. Probably would have been pretty good at it. But I think I also would have been pretty unhappy in the long run. Being happy, that's the key thing. I interviewed somebody yesterday and that's exactly what they pointed out as well, was just one of the key things is to make sure that you're happy with, with what you're doing. So then, okay, you painted a good picture for us. Thanks so much for that. And let's roll ahead with your career though. So Bill Curry said yes and graduate school now. So how did you go about applying for graduate school and which school did you pick? Because I know Phil Curry's working out of a museum, so you still have to pick an institution to to do your study. So how did you go about that? Well, that was fairly easy, actually. Uh, Phil was an adjunct at U of C, at the University of Calgary. And so if he was going to be my supervisor, I had to apply to the University of Calgary. Also had the advantage too, when um, on that same trip, when I talked to him at the trail, I came down to the University of Calgary and I found out where the geology building was, walked into the office and said, hey, I'm thinking of applying to grad school in paleontology. How do I do that? And they said, you should talk to Len Hills. And then this was my second supervisor and I went and talked to him. And he actually was a prof at the University of Calgary, another paleontologist. Len and I got along quite well right away, which means when I actually applied, I actually had a couple supervisors in place, which makes it much easier for the school to accept you. Uh, I think if you are looking to go to grad school, one of the classical ways is you just send out a lot of applications to a lot of different schools and hope that one will accept you. A great way to do it, which I didn't realize at the time was the way that I ended up doing it, is again, finding a supervisor who's working on something that you want to work with and go in there with a supervisor who has already agreed to take you on. So now the institution doesn't have to do that work. You're making it easy for them. And when it makes it easy for them, makes it easy for them to also accept you. For people that are listening, what's the process like in applying for grad school? If you could just describe that to us briefly. A lot of paperwork, if I remember. Lots of forms where you have to fill out, getting together all of your credentials, like your undergrad degree, and you have to indicate your desired area of study. And then then there's interviews that go along with that, whether it's phone interviews or in-person interviews. Again, I got to skip a lot of that because I already had supervisors in place that would take me on, again, streamline the whole process. I know you did a doctorate. Was that your initial intent to do the doctorate or was it a master's, then then turning to a doctorate? The original intent was to uh, start with the master's and didn't then do a doctorate because I didn't, at the time, really know that you could jump straight into a doctorate. And in fact, you can't. You have to register for your master's. If you have an undergraduate degree, you can't directly start a doctorate program. I had always intended to go all the way because at the time in paleontology, I thought that you either ended up in a museum or uh, in a university. And either way, you pretty much need a PhD to continue your careers at those two types of institutions. I ended up, like I say, signing up for a master's. And after being there for a year, Len Hills recommended I jump directly into a doctorate because he felt that I could handle uh, that level of education without actually doing a master's. It is an option if your uh, supervisor recommends it, something you can do. 
It does have its drawbacks. I know a number of people who tried that method who jumped from, without completing their master's, jumped into a doctorate, but never completed their doctorate. So they ended up leaving the grad school process with no degree instead of a master's degree. So there are potential downfalls, but if you do intend to go all the way, there is the advantage that you don't have to do a master's and then a doctorate. Yeah, that's a lot of years that kind of just goes down the tube. It's surprising how many uh, people uh, in grad school never actually finish. I worked there. So that's how Paul and I actually know each other because I worked in geoscience as well. Or, well, back then it was known as geology and geophysics. So that's how I met Paul. So essentially we go back a number of years, but let's go through your experience there a little bit. So let's paint a picture again for people that are listening that are interested in following something similar. What's it like to work towards your graduate degree? And I'm talking about your course material and how that evolved into your thesis. So you show up, you have an interest. I was interested in dinosaurs. You don't have a thesis topic yet, and you have a certain number of course requirements to fulfill. So usually the first year of your grad school life is filling up those course requirements. So taking a number of courses. I found this to be a lot of fun because for one of the first times in your life, you're concentrating almost entirely on courses that you get to pick. You don't have nearly as many hoops to jump through as you're doing your undergrad courses that you have to take that you don't necessarily like. You get to choose a lot of your own requirements. I enjoyed that quite a bit. As you're doing that, of course, you're having discussions with your supervisor and trying to figure out a project. And so at some point you'll have to put together a thesis proposal, which will basically outline what you think your thesis project will be, how you're going to accomplish it, what materials you're going to need, all the details on how you're going to write a thesis. And, and your thesis, uh, in, in case uh, your listeners are unfamiliar with it, is supposed to be a piece of new scientific information. So to get graduate work, to get your graduate degree, you actually have to contribute. It sounds quite noble. You have to contribute to the greater knowledge of mankind sort of thing. So you have to provide new research, which people haven't done before, which adds significantly to your field. It's not always that significant, but su supposedly significantly to your field. <laughs> Fair enough. You're pushing scientific research is what you're doing. You're doing something new, something that hasn't been done before. Correct. Yeah. So you then present your thesis proposal. And then again, this is supposedly supposed to be the thing that you continue to work on through the rest of your career or at least your graduate studies. One of the things that I did as well, coming in, because I was coming out of geology and going into paleontology, of course, my background in biology was quite light. I didn't have a lot of courses in biology and understanding how animals are put together, the anatomy, the physiology of animals is very important in the field of paleontology. So even though I wasn't necessarily required to take the biology classes, I took uh, a number of biology classes and audited a number of biology classes as well, just to be able to shore up what I perceived was a, a hole in my knowledge so I could be better rounded in the field of paleontology. Great, fair enough. I guess that's where the fun comes in. I mean, you're taking classes, you're auditing classes that interest you, that what would, would help you with your research. These are senior level classes though. What I mean by senior level classes, 
is for people that are doing undergraduate, you're taking, in your fourth year, you're usually taking 500 level classes, which is your most senior for an undergraduate. But in a graduate degree, you're taking six or 700 level classes, which is another step above that. So as far as difficulty is concerned, uh, I mean, I, again, I understand and I respect the fact that you're saying it, they're fun classes because you're really interested in it, but are they more involved? Definitely more involved. The idea is you're no longer a passive student. You're no longer just someone who's sitting there and, and the professor's telling you their opinion about things. You're supposed to take it to the next level where you're actually thinking beyond what the professor is telling you, challenging the professor is fine, coming up with your own ideas. And a lot of it is, again, what you bring into it yourself. And, and again, I think my uh, engineering degree, the degree at Queen's, my undergrad was very useful because a lot of that focused on, like I say, on critical thinking and problem solving. So when you're getting the information from the profs at this level, you're expected to go beyond just the course curriculum go into it deeper. And a lot of them are seminar courses where the students themselves do part of the work and then bring that and present it um, to the other students in the class. And again, it, it's more involved where you're more of a participant rather than a recipient of the knowledge that's being given. So it's not the more traditional way of when you did your undergraduate where you're plowing through a bunch of material you get a midterm exam and a final exam and maybe a paper or two to write. It's more of just sit down discussions, presenting your ID. And towards the end, you come up with some theory, you present something to the class. Seminar classes, that is case. But yeah, I was just going to say, even for some of the high level courses, for evaluation purposes, you're still writing exams and still writing papers that are being graded. Okay. So how many of these courses do you take? We start getting into your thesis and how does that evolve? I can't remember exactly. There's less for a master's than there is for a PhD. I'm thinking the courses I was required to take are somewhere around six, if I remember correctly. And that was within your first year? That was within the first year, yeah. So then, if I understand everything correctly, you do a dissertation, do you not, before they even push you further into your doctor, before you can actually kick off your thesis? Am I, am I right about that? It's probably not the dissertation you're thinking of. They do it called your uh, comprehensives. Once you've done your coursework and put forward a thesis proposal for your PhD, not for your master's, but for your PhD, they do what they call a comprehensive exam. Comprehensive because you're expected to have a certain level of background knowledge in the field that will qualify you as someone who be uh, considered to be an expert in the field. Uh, a lot of universities do it in many different ways. When I did it at the University of Calgary, was you actually sit down in front of a panel of six people, the three people that form your committee, as well as a moderator and what they call an internal external, which is another prof from the department, and an external, which is a prof from a different department. And for about four or five hours, they actually grill you on every single aspect of your field. So for me, it was everything to do with uh, biology to evolution, geology, 
all of those things, all sorts of different questions. And if you don't actually make it through your comprehensives, they don't allow you to continue on in the PhD program. It's intense. At least that's what I remember a lot of people are saying. It is intense. So how do you study for something like that? One of the great ways that I did it is I went and talked to my committee members. You know who your committee members are going to be. And obviously, they're not going to uh, give you all the answers. But you talk to them and say, hey, I'm going to be doing your comprehensives. What aspects of the field do you think are important? What should I understand if I was going to be a good representative of the field of paleontology? And so a lot of them would actually throw out different areas that I should know, certain papers that I should read, create key critical papers, which have outlined some of the founding bases for paleontology throughout its academic history. So you get a big reading list, start to work through the reading list. And so like I say, a lot of people actually spend three or four months actually going through the reading list, preparing the background knowledge, just to actually get yourself ready for these comprehensives. How long did it take you? It took about three months to actually sit down and prepare for it after I'd done my courses. Just curious, leading up to it, were you nervous? Oh, absolutely. I think everybody is. I would say it was probably one of the most intense tests that I've gone through in my education history. Later on, when you actually defend your thesis, when you've defended your work to your panel, in many ways, that was much less worrying because there I'd done the work. I was the expert because it was new knowledge. I knew more about this topic than my committee did. I was less worried about that than I was worried about the comprehensive because in that situation, everything's fair game. Any question they want to ask. In many ways, they often ask you questions that you can't answer because they also want to see how you approach questions that don't have answers, questions that you don't have answers for. They want to look at your thought process. How do you approach these sort of questions. And so that's a part of the comprehensives as well that perhaps isn't recognized as often as just the pure knowledge base that's required. When you finish the comprehensive, they tell you right away, do they not, whether you've passed or not, or do you sit on a bunch of nails for a couple of days? It's not a couple of days. It is about an hour or so where you leave the room and then your committee gets together and discusses whether they deem you worthy or not. So there's a lot of sweat pouring out of you at that time. There's a lot of sweat pouring out at that time. Okay, obviously you passed. So now you're getting into your thesis. You're doing your research. So what was your research all about? If you could give us a bit of a, a story on that, what did that entail? And then tell us how you went about it. Yeah, it, it was about something uh, completely different than what it became. <laughs> okay. Uh, I had originally came in under Phil Curry. I liked dinosaurs. Big at the time, of course, was the first Jurassic Park coming out. Velociraptors were really cool. We have our own version of Velociraptor here in Alberta called Sword of the West. And my original thesis proposal was to actually work on the walking uh, mechanics of Thorin with Lesties. If you remember Jurassic Park, they're not as big as they are in Jurassic Park, but they have these very muscular tails. Um, these tails are used as kind of a counterbalance as they're walking on the legs. So the, 
the tail plays a huge role in how these animals move, walk, jump, hunt, all of those sorts of locomotion. I started working on that project, trying to figure out how, how velociraptors and their kin, and like I say, sort of lesties, walk and ran. As I said, it was also after Jurassic Park. So velociraptors and their kin were very, very hot, very popular, the press. As a result, as I was trying to go around and talking to people at specimens that I could actually investigate for my thesis work, the general response was, oh yeah, we've got one of those. Sure, you can look on it as soon as I publish. I'm like, okay, when are you going to publish? And it's like, oh, sometime in the next couple of years. So basically, I didn't have a lot of access to many specimens. So I hitting a real roadblock on how I could move forward looking at these animals. And then it was kind of interesting because my supervisor, Len Hills, who is a very diverse, kind of almost an old school scientist, and then he had his fingers into a lot of different areas of interest. He knew I was working on locomotion and was fairly familiar with how animals walked in their trackways. And he came to me and said, hey, I think we've got mammoth tracks. Now, do you mind coming and having a look? Because you understand trackways, see whether they actually are tracks or not. This was down at St. Mary's Reservoir. I traveled down with him in the middle of winter. I think it was about minus 10 degrees. Walked out onto this wind-swept plain. I didn't think there were mammoth tracks because these things were almost unknown at the time. You just didn't find them anywhere in the world. I expected to go up there and find some sort of kind of weird a geological pothole or something like that that wasn't mammoth tracks. I took a look at them and I went, wow, mammoth tracks. We had actually found a mammoth trackway on the floor of the reservoir. As we continued around the site and looking around, we realized not only did we have mammoth tracks, there were camel tracks, there were bison tracks, there were horse tracks, a lot of different animals, all from about 11,000 years ago. In addition to the trackways, we also found the best selection of preserved horse skeletons from anywhere in Canada at this site, also about 11,000 years old. This is kind of a one in a lifetime site. And that turned into my thesis was working on these trackways and the horse skeletons. Where is this site again? The St. Mary Reservoir down by uh, Cardston, Alberta, only a stone's throw away from the U.S. border. I'm just trying to put things together in my head. So you're looking at these tracks. So basically your thesis was sort of how these animals were moving. Am, am I right about that or? Yeah, I did a lot of work, especially with the mammoth tracks. We looked at the movement of the tracks by analyzing the pace distance. A lot of what we did, I actually ended up doing with the mammoth tracks population dynamics. You can actually correlate the track diameters to the age quite well. And because mammoths are such large animals and start out from a very small size and grow quite large, we can actually see that we had a whole age range of individuals present. And we could actually use the track size as a proxy to figure out what the population dynamics were of the mammoth herd at the time. And because not only do we have individual tracks, but we often had trackways often of multiple animals, we could actually do some inferences of how the animals interacted with each other and how they moved as a herd and that sort of thing. Without getting into a lot of detail, because we don't have time, 
to review your entire thesis, but how does somebody go about figuring something out? How do you approach a problem like that? I understand you, you go to the site and you look at all this, but how do you start putting things together? How do you conduct your research so you pull a thesis together and present it? I think it took you, what, three or four years to do this work. So how does somebody go about doing that? In science, a lot of it can be just looking at the data, collecting the data, putting it together, organizing it. And ideally, you're going in with an open mind, so you don't have a bias, you don't have a preconceived idea. This is where a lot of science falls apart. People have an idea before they start, and then they look for data to confirm their idea. It should be the other way around. You should have your data, and then your understandings, your your findings, your conclusions come out of that data. So one of the things I just started doing is, again, looking, realizing, okay, we've got some mammoth tracks. Cool. Well, let's start recording them. What are the things that we can know about them? One of them is, how big are they? And obviously, your first idea, does that mean big mammoths make big tracks and little mammoths make little tracks? Sounds obviously that might be an obvious first step. But in fact, it's not quite that obvious because you could actually have them stepping in different types of sediment. And because of that, the tracks could be various size because one case they're stepping in sand, another case they're stepping in mud. And so then you have to try and eliminate all those possibilities. Once you have a look at that, you can figure out, okay, yeah, we do have big mammoths and little mammoths. Now we can start to say, well, how old are those mammoths? How do mammoths grow? And then look for a modern analog in this case. Some of the closest relatives, of course, to mammoths are the modern-day elephants, the Indian and African elephants. Then you start looking at data which has their growth curves. How do they grow? How is the foot size correlated to the age in terms of elephants? Can we relate that back? So without getting into the details, but giving what's offered, having a look at the data, seeing what's there first without bias, and then seeing what it can give you back to it. And then following those leads and seeing where they take you so that the conclusions are coming out of the data rather than out of your biases. How do you determine how big your thesis is going to be? Because you you could write books and books and books on this. How do you carve out the part that you're going to actually present? How do you do that? Well, yeah, this is where your supervisor becomes extremely useful. Having someone in the field who's seen a lot of theses as you say, there's been a lot of people who, who drown in their theses in university and grad school simply because they can be never-ending. But at some point, you have to chop it off, pick a digestible trunk, something that can be done. So you have to pick a topic that can be done, that can be completed, trying not to leave it open-ended. Yeah, there, can be, there will always be questions you didn't answer. But only pick the ones that you can answer for that thesis. Your supervisor can be tremendously helpful for that. And quite honestly, a lot of people will think that a PhD is a sign of brilliance. There's the old uh, saying, what is it? 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. And a lot of that is true in the PhD. A lot of people get their PhDs just because they're too stubborn not to quit. Okay. <laughs> PhD is not necessarily an indication of intelligence so much as perseverance. I would argue that. I think you're pretty bright to finish it off. I think it's a big endeavor. It absolutely is. And that is a real trick is to be able to pick off a manageable chunk, something that you can do, that you can complete. And the questions will always be there. They can be continue on with further researcher. 
even if not by you, but by the next person who comes along to look at the site, to look at the data. So obviously you're writing up your thesis. If you could just give us an, an idea of what it's like to defend your thesis. Just again, for people that are interested in going down a road like this, just give it a brief one minute, two minute synopsis of what's entailed on finally putting the whole thing together, defending it. What does that actually entail? The writing is probably the most painful part. Most theses these days are on the order of at least a minimum of about 300 pages for a PhD um, of writing, correlating all of your references and making sure everything all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So that's the most painful part of it. For me, the defense was in many ways a relief because I finally got to just talk and defend about the work in which I did. I found out at the last minute that the UFC had changed their policy. And so mine turned into an open defense where I was sitting again in front of a panel of six people, like when I did my comprehensives. And you do about a half hour presentation of your topic, PowerPoint slides, and then afterwards they grill you about your thesis, including your methodology, all of your conclusions, all of the work you've done. An open defense means that it's also open to the general public. So in addition to my panel, there was about 20 other people, including many PhD candidates who also want to come in and see, hey, what does the defense look like? What am I going to have to do? As well as people who are just interested in the topic who could sit in and uh, see your research. For me also, it was very neat because uh, my parents were there. They'd flown out from Ontario, and so they actually got to uh, sit in the room and see me essentially get my PhDs. It's a big celebration, isn't it? How long did it take you all together from start to finish? Oh, for me, it took about nine years. Nine years. So yeah, and that's that maybe a little bit longer working in that department. I think the average person was about five, six years. I think it's about six and a half years is the average time for a PhD. For me, nine years, because life was happening around me as well. Not only was the PhD going on, I, I became a father in there. So at one point I became a house husband as well. So I stayed at home with my son and was helping to raise him. And I was also doing consulting at the time to actually earn some money. So I certainly could have done it more quickly if I had focused on nothing else. But life happens around you and you just make it work. Yeah, no, that's right. I think a lot of people overlook that part though too, because you are still in your 20s, in your 30s. And that's a big part of anybody's life. Well, any part is a big part of anybody's life, but your life is really getting started and you're having a young family and whatnot. So you've graduated with your PhD from the University of Calgary in paleontology. So what did you do then? What did you do after you graduated? Well, like I say, I had been doing some consulting, which I got into through Wen Hills, which is consulting with industry to make sure that paleontological resources are protected in the province. I actually ended up getting some sessional teaching for the University of Calgary, where I'd come in and teach some of their courses to students as a professor. And I applied for and we got a job up in Grand Prairie at Grand Prairie Regional College. It was a dual position to not only teach at the college and as well to develop an academic program at the college for people potentially trying to get into paleontology. Also, they had a group up there that was uh, building a museum and working in kind of the preparator lab tech type situation so 
So you did that right after the consulting. Are you still doing the consulting? Are you not? I am doing the consulting. So what does that entail now? Just give us a bit of a, a story on that. Basically, a lot of people are quite familiar with the idea of, of environmental assessment and environmental protection. They're, they're quite aware that anytime you have a big construction project, you have to be aware of the impact that's going to have on the environment. So you have to look at things like water, wildlife, environment, all those things which are impacted by the construction of things, say like a road, a bridge, a pipeline, power line, wind turbines, all of these sort of major projects. A lot of people aren't aware is one component of that is that's governed under the uh, Historical Resources Act for Alberta is that we also have to be aware that these projects can impact, we say, our historical resources, which basically fall into two categories, either archaeological resources, which of course are ones that are primarily First Nations people in this part of the world, though that can include some of the earlier settler type stuff from the 1900s. Uh, the other one, of course, being fossils. So anytime you're going to dig a pipeline or create a, a bridge, you have the potential for digging into bedrock, digging into the soil, and impacting paleontological resources. Because these are considered to be an important scientific resource that belongs to all the people of Alberta, then these companies are responsible to make sure that these resources aren't impacted greatly. And if they are, we can rescue them either prior to or during construction. We do this by doing a desktop study initially for most projects where you look at the geology um, of the area, you look at if there's any, been any prior finds in the area, and then you look at the impact that the project's going to have, for example, like how deep are they going to dig? And then you can say, nope, you're in an area where you have the wrong rocks, you're not digging deep enough, so go ahead and construct your project. So that would be the simplest case scenario. But the next level would be you look at, again, all of that desktop study, the research, and you realize, okay, there are potential to have fossils in the area. We'll say prior to construction, you have to go out and do field work and do a survey of it. So go around and look for fossils or for the right geology that may contain fossils that might be impacted for the project. And again, you make a recommendation to the government um, about whether further work should be required or not. And the next stage would be if you do recommend further work and the government says it's required, you're actually on site during construction. So a bit of a full circle for me. I'm back out in the field with a lot of big construction equipment while they're digging holes in the ground. So, And I watch what they're digging for, look at the rocks, and if we do find fossils, Make sure that those are adequately protected, collected, or covered over in an area so that uh, they're accessible to future generations. So you can actually slow a construction project down quite considerably. We can, but that's not the goal. <laughs> that's not the goal, okay. The goal is to actually work with the construction companies to make sure that we slow them down as little as possible, yet still get the recover the fossils. And you've been doing this since you've graduated. So it's been what, about 20 years now, has it? Oh uh, yeah, I started it back when in my graduate program with uh, Len Hills. He used to do it as a side project and he used to get his graduate students out working with him as a way as, of giving us extra funding. And so yeah, I've probably been doing it for over 25 years now. 
Have you been doing anything else? Has any other types of projects come your way? One of the things is quite often as it's consulting, there are times where it's slow, where you don't have a lot of work. So a friend of mine knew that uh, a company was actually looking for well-site geologists, which is geologists who go out and sit on uh, rigs and actually look at the samples while they're drilling to make sure that they're drilling in the right geological formations. Give me a call out of the blue and basically asked if I was willing to do some well-site work. Of course, at the time I told them, I'm willing. You do realize I don't have much experience in it. And they said, well, you'll probably figure it out. I said, well, I'll give it a try then. So again, that was about 11, 12 years ago, I started doing that. And this is, again, where probably the letters PhD after my name helped out quite a bit. So they put me on a bunch of research projects, experimental projects, where they were trying to define oil and gas in new ways, ways that hadn't been done before. And then I ended up doing a lot of those sorts of projects, which are actually quite a lot of fun. A lot of new technical challenges, not only in learning the rocks and what they're trying to do, but also learning how they're recovering it. A lot of the mechanical challenges that come with the projects. You've also been doing, I think, tours too, have you not? Sort of hiking tours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Back when I was a grad student, when I first started doing it, people might be familiar with the Burgess Shale. If you're not, it is probably the single most important paleontological site in the entire world. It's a 500 million year old site located in Yoho National Park in BC. And it's important because it's when life first started getting large, life first started getting complicated. And also we have soft body preservation, which means we have the entire, not only the shells and bones of these animals, but all the soft tissues preserved as well. And because of that, the patterns of evolution, the patterns of extinction, the patterns of survivalship, which are going to govern the next 500 million years of life on Earth, are most clearly outlined at this site. And again, that's why if you surveyed all the paleontologists in the world, it's probably the single most important fossil site in the entire world. You can only go up there with a registered licensed guide. Once I first started my graduate work, I figured it's someplace As a paleontologist, I should have at least visited. So I visited as a client and paid my money, went up to see the quarry. Amazing day. And then again, two years later, one of the people that I was going to school with, who was a guide up there, said a guide had just quit. And she asked me if I would be interested, if she could recommend my name to the director of the foundation at the time. And yeah, so that became my summer job for a couple of years was actually as a, as a, uh, grad student was guiding uh, tours up to the British Shale. I enjoyed it so much that I've continued doing it now for the last 22 years. <laughs> so how do you get called for something like that? Do people call you or does an organization call you to take a bunch of people up? How does that work? You go on the website, the British Shale Geoscience Foundation. One of the great things about that is it's a nonprofit foundation. One of its mandates is that all of the guides are geoscience professionals. So that when you're going up to look at the site, you're not just going up with someone reading off a cue card, but someone who actually understands the material, understands the science behind the site. You can ask them all sorts of questions and they'll have answers for you. You can go on the website and you can book it up. You can either book in as a, an individual on the public tour. So they do actually allow you to book off 
entire uh, private tours for institutions or companies or things like that. Quite often we'll get companies using it as a uh, kind of a team building exercise, spend the day in the mountains, do a long hike. Or like I say, we often get educational institutions. University of Calgary usually books up a couple groups every year to take people up to look at the fossil beds. How many of these do you do a year or in a season? When I was doing it as a job, I would do about 35 to 40 of them in the season. The season's short because it's in Yoho and it's on high elevation. So we can basically only guide from about the beginning of July to about the middle of September. These days, again, because it's not my source of income, it's just something that I really enjoy doing. This year, I did 10 of them. So considering way back when you were thinking about leaving Fort McMurray, because you were working there as an engineer, and you talked to Phil Curry about life as a paleontologist, it's interesting. He said there, there were no jobs, but if you loved it, you would make it work. And it sounds like, to me, like you've made it work. Yeah, that's an important thing as well, is opportunities come. You may not recognize it. You may not necessarily know where they're going to come from. But by getting yourself out there, by talking to people, by doing various things and interacting with people, you will actually get opportunities. And I think I've made it work by trying those opportunities. Not all of those opportunities have been successful. You know, sometimes things don't work out. But being willing to take that chance, being willing to put yourself out there, being willing to try something new, to learn new things, to experience the world. I know there are people who know from the time they're a little kid what they want to do and their life is a straight line. It's like, I want to be a fireman and they just kind of go from that and they go from being a kid to being a fireman. But I find the vast majority of people, their life isn't a straight line. It's kind of a winding path with lots of various options where you can turn off, you can take one fork or you can take the other. There's always a safe route. There's always a little bit of a risk. I found my life has worked out really well by actually taking a little bit of a risk, putting yourself out there, trying something new, seeing if it works. And if it works, that's amazing because you'd find new paths, you find new things you can do. Interestingly enough, sometimes the things that haven't worked, I've learned more about myself from things that haven't worked than things that have worked. And that's actually helped me progress further on the things that I do like, the things that have worked, because it helps me understand myself better. Words of wisdom. And that's how I usually end up the shows. I mean, we're running out of time slowly. You definitely gave you a lot of good thought there, but any other things that you've learned that you would like to pass on to people that would want to do something similar as to what you're doing or are just sitting there listening and going, I have no idea what I want to do. Any other thoughts or things that you've learned that you've picked up on the way that you'd like to just pass on to anybody else? Like I said, I think the big thing is putting yourself out there. Just go and do it. I, I know it sounds trite and fairly obvious, but a lot of people, I think, almost put too much effort into planning out something that's going to be perfect. Life isn't perfect. Life is messy. They say there's lots of false starts. A lot of my success has been just by going out and asking people, hey, can I do this? Well, let me start. And then going from there. Right? Let's figure it out as we go. I say it doesn't always work out, but the more you do it, you kind of gain confidence in yourself. You know yourself better. With that in mind, you actually 
find out that you have more abilities than you think you do. You can do more than you think you are capable of. And it leads to a very exciting result. <laughs> wow. Okay. Those are really good words of wisdom. So you've gone from being, well, going to engineering. You worked up in the Canadian Shield, gold mining prospect company. We were just looking for gold, basically, is what you were doing. From there, you went to Fort McMurray. You were working as an engineer there. So to, you, what did you call that wall? How, how, how did, high wall monitor. High wall monitor. And from that, you discovered that you were interested in paleontology. You talked to Phil Curry there at the Tyrell Museum, and you applied at the University of Calgary, and you did your doctorate thesis there. From there, you've been doing consulting work. You've worked with the college. Which college was that again that you were trying to set up? A Grand Prairie Regional. Grand Prairie college. Regional. Yeah. yeah. And you were setting up a program there. You've been doing consulting, and you've been doing tours in Burgess Shale. Is there anything I've missed? I think you've got most of it anyway. With that, I'd just like to thank you so much for this great conversation. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure the listeners will find it very insightful as well. I hope they do. Like I say, just get out there and uh, put yourself out there. Yeah, just put yourself out there. I mean, Paul turned out fine. And I think a lot of people do. We're just scared to do it. That's all. Oh, and so am I. Like you say, I Every time I start something new, I'm always nervous about it. And I always feel if you aren't a little bit nervous, you aren't a little bit afraid about the steps you're taking, you're not taking enough risks. So. Okay, there you go. Well, words of wisdom. Well, thanks so much again, Paul. I really appreciate your time. Oh, great to talk to you, Mickey. Okay, thanks. I would like to thank Paul for that informative and motivational interview. What a great story he had. Paul is definitely an example of making his passion work. Just to recap, some of the key elements from the interview are, Paul did complete his undergraduate degree in engineering geophysics from Queen's University. He did say this was an eye-opening experience for him. He was really humbled. But he also developed some cool skills, such as problem-solving skills, which further developed his creativity. He did talk about this throughout the interview, that how these skills became invaluable. Upon graduating, he worked for a gold mining company in Northern Ontario, and he got into a lot of detail of what this was like. He also talked about what motivated him to come out west and how he ended up at Fort McMurray. He talked about what he did up there and what it was like working in Northern Alberta in the oil sands. Anybody interested in a career in the oil sands or in the mining industry would definitely have found this segment very useful. He talked about when a dinosaur was discovered near the oil sands area and how this led him to investigate what it would be like to have a career as a paleontologist. Ironically, it was at the same time he was considering a career change. Who says faith doesn't happen? He thoroughly explained the application process in applying to grad school at the University of Calgary some real key points for anyone who's considering attending grad school. He started doing a master's and then later transferred to a doctorate program. In doing so, he explains the difference between the two degrees. He then talked about the courses that he had to take and how this all evolved into his research for his thesis. 
He did get into how he conducted his research and some of the obstacles that he faced and how he overcame them. He talked about what he did upon graduating and how he took his passion and how he came across all the opportunities he had and still does. His advice is do not be afraid to put yourself out there. The more things you try, the more you will learn about yourself. And in doing so, you will gain more confidence in doing different things. With that, I have to say it was a real treat to interview Paul. He came across as a very light-hearted, very personable person that does not take himself too seriously. And that would be the biggest lesson I would like to pass on to everybody, is do not take yourself too seriously. Once again, I would like to thank Paul for that great interview. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy. Well, I will be interviewing Leslie Hetherington from theater to public relations. 